0: You have to destroy your father or your mother, don't you? And that's Mm. what it's about. You can love them, but you have to destroy them in order to be an artist. (laughs) I just think you have to be critical of your gods, you know?
1: (laughs) In the 1950s and 60s, the artists in St Ives Cornwall turned the seaside town into the hub of an art movement that connected not just to London, but to Paris, and New York, and beyond. The achievements of these artists are embodied by the Tate St Ives building itself, where visitors can see the historical work side by side with the contemporary and the international. But it's the lasting influence of these artists, and of Cornwall itself, that interests me here. These artists are recognisable names in British art history. Ben Winifred Nicholson, Barbara Hepworth, Patrick Heron, Roger and Rose Hilton, Bernard Leach, Alfred Wallace, Naam Gabo, Terry Frost, Wilhelmina barnes Graham, and Peter Lanyon. He is described by Chris Stevens in his book, Peter Lanyon, At the Edge of Landscape, as one of the most exciting and original landscape painters of the 20th century. The only native-born Cornishman of the St. Ives artists, Lanyon's representation of the land he grew up in was complex and passionate. For him it was part social history, part myth, part aesthetic. A major collector of his work, David Bowie, said of his paintings that the secret attraction of course is that through his landscape he revealed with assured a quiet complexity a palimpsest of his own being. I'm Beau Lanyon, one of Peter's grandchildren and also an artist, so his influence for me is different. He's there as an ancestor in books, on gallery walls, and in family photos, a grandfather I've never met. But this isn't about my relationship with him. I was curious about how that influence was now, from Peter, St. Ives, to Cornwall, the place itself, to see what the relationship with that history is for other artists working now. Lucy Stein is an artist based in St Just in Penwith, Cornwall. She has a major solo show coming up at Spike Island, Bristol in May 2021. She's married to the artist Stephen Claydon and they have two young daughters. She is known for her paintings of women which utilise various techniques, including automatism and potato printing. Lucy sees her career so far as a meditation on suicide and sorcery.
2: The older generation are very kind of fixated on it, and younger people tend to be more, you know, to have more of a humorous, slightly sardonic perhaps relation to it. But generally, you know, it's a proud heritage here, you know, it's a world class collection at Tate, and I think that's such an important kind of thing to have a rural place where you can have the the benefits of being in a kind of pastoral kind of environment, and then to have a world-class collection that relates to that place is really unusual.
1: Born in Bristol and raised on Dartmoor, Hannah Murgatroyd works between painting and drawing on a large and small scale. She had a solo presentation at Draw Art Fair in 2019 with Von Goertz and is a mentor on the Terps Painting School Correspondence Course. She set up the Painters Network South West in 2019 via Instagram, as a resource for painters to connect and instigate their own ideas, both a thinking space for painters and those interested in painting, with regular takeovers of the account and curated online shows in view of the pandemic.
0: It's a tourist industry, isn't it? Mm. But it's also, the cult is also a kind of cult of middle-class taste, and I think that's a really dangerous thing for art. I think one of the reasons I've, I've kind of disliked the St Ives painters and quite a lot of modern British painting is because of the derivative work that's happened afterwards, which doesn't have any of the kind of raw excitement in some of that early work. The cult is also that it's kind of art for homes. Not that art shouldn't be for homes, but it's a bit like Kettle's Yard. You know, Kettle's Yard, St. Ives, they're these kind of um, palaces of middle-class good taste. And yeah, that's a dangerous thing for art. Best art doesn't really happen within those kind of parameters. You know, the best art has frictions and difficulties, which is within some of those painters, those original St. Ives painters. But I also think that one of the things we don't talk about is, you know, they were incredibly middle class, if not, well, they were upper middle class, a lot of them. And, you know, choosing this kind of ascetic life which is a very middle-class thing to do to be ascetic you know because you choose to have few possessions and have whitewash walls and have these tasteful things around you and the bits of driftwood and you know kind of make Alfred Wallace into your god um, because he's the authentic being.
2: I think I've moved through quite a number of stages of my own relation to this to this history and that you know, the content that it generates for me. So currently I would say that I am not in a particularly kind of ironical relationship with it, I think. I'm just not in that headspace at the moment. The great epic achievements of those people was really important to me for a while. Not so much any longer. Now I'm just interested in more formal stuff, I would say. I mean, I was very obsessed with your grandfather. I mean, I still am very, very fascinated
1: by his painting. Gwenno is a musician and conceptual artist from Cardiff, Wales. Her debut album won the Welsh Music Prize 2015, and La Corve, her critically acclaimed second album, was written and sung entirely in Cornish. Le Corve translates as Place of Memory and includes the song Tia Ha Mor, Land and Sea, which was directly inspired by the work of Peter Lanyon.
3: I'd uh, not paid a huge amount of attention to the Saint Ives School in terms of the artists that had, um you know, arrived in Saint Ives, but I was then struck by your granddad's work because I was like, oh my goodness, this is the the most progressive, freeing thing that I've seen, and you know, I I, I came to his work late. Um, and I, I I was just overwhelmed by the freedom of it and the progressiveness of it and the boldness of it um, and the Cornishness of it. So it was just a hit on this thing that I was looking for in the Cornish identity. I was like, okay, so where is the freedom and the progression and the confidence and it's that it just hit me I was just like oh my goodness this is just incredible um and then I was looking into his life and then his bardic name being Marhagen Gwynst rider of the winds and then again and obviously it's to do with him as an artist in terms of how you know how much he wanted to push his practice and also reading into his passion and feeling of wanting to defend Cornwall and go, no, you don't quite understand. It's actually like this. And I and I really loved that. And I love that in his work. Um, and so the song just came so easily then. And I was just sort of, I was just imagining him gliding over Cornwall, getting a better view and just that confidence and just like whoosh, you know? It just gave me an approach to thinking about how to write the songs and it gave me a confidence in being as abstract as well sonically because we were really trying to do that because i was thinking a lot about his work and it's the abstraction of it as well that i loved because certainly from my background um cornish celtic identity um could be more rigid in terms of um, visually because up to that point I'd seen that sort of Celtic corner with all the Celtic knots and all of that stuff and then I'd seen you know these people that do these terrible paintings of the sea for people to put in Airbnbs, and then I saw this and it was just like ah here it is
2: My great-grandfather, who was German, came to around St. Merin over 100 years ago, and they lived in London, but they bought land at Traveille's Head. Basically, they came down, they, they bought land, and then some of them settled here, some of them stayed in London. So when I was growing up, we'd always come and stay with Rick, my famous uncle. And jail and my cousins um, in, well, first of all, on Trevay's head at the house they had called Redlands and then in Trevay. And my grandmother had lived in Cornwall shortly before I was born and my grandfather and his brother had sort of lived between Cornwall and London. There were people permanently here and people who, who were just here in the summer. My father spent a great deal of his youth down here With his five siblings and I mean it was a bit it's a bit of a sad history because his father committed suicide at Trevaux's head so there was a bit well a lot of sort of you know sadness around some of the history but it was also somewhere that was very important to to visit. One of the things you asked me about was
0: the influence of Dartmoor growing up and we started to talk a little bit about Berlin as well and why I left Berlin and one of the reasons for me was that I wanted to make landscape paintings as well and you know even though I'm working with the figure the landscape is very present in my work and I found that in Berlin the landscape is such a heavy place um you know if I thought about nature if I went out in the woods or anything like that I was just essentially walking across very recent death. Landscape in Germany for me was never a space of liberty. It was really a space of weight and kind of reckoning. And that was one of my motivations for coming back to Britain. That I needed to think about landscape painting and I needed to do that here on my home soil. And interestingly, since being in Bath, I started to think about deeper layers within that. I think That there was kind of 2014, 2015, when I first started coming over to Bath, places like the Holborn had a very strong influence on me in terms of how I began to um, connect with this portrait, such as there's a big collection of uh, miniatures, and also the Gainsborough portrait really influenced my thinking around the portrait. But more recently, I've started to kind of think deeper, and there's the layers below the Regency and Georgian, which is kind of architectural and very much around the body as well. Below that, then there's the Roman underpinnings of the city. Um, And so I've been going, returning back to a lot of work I did 10 years ago, which was around mythology, um, Greek mythology, and particularly Aphrodite. And I think that that's in part come from this kind of ancient layering within the city I'm in. I'm in a Roman city. Um, and what that also means about that Roman city laid upon the primitive Britain below that, which is links back to the Britain that I grew up in. It was very common for me to be around standing stones, to be around articles of faith without any known meaning. We have all our supposed and projected meanings around um, the constructions within the landscape and the kind of history of body within that landscape is very, you know, it's part invented. We have a sense of what we know, but we don't actually know. We don't have any total proof. And I think this kind of, this uh, connection to a landscape and bodies as something very Ancient and something connected to ideas of faith, but not necessarily organized religion.
1: Peter Lanyon interviewed by Lionel Miskin, 1961. And uh, what about? your roots and cornwall and the kind of landscape
4: and so on, which you keep harking back to. Now, how, how important was this particular structural landscape to you when you
5: developed into a mature painter, sort of from forty-seven onwards? Well, I think very curiously, um, this country here and its, its stone and its oldness were actually my own bones.
2: I was working a lot at this time with Simon Bayliss, who's an artist who I actually met in Ireland, on the west coast of Ireland, in the Burren, which is quite a similar landscape to here. He was studying at an art school there, and I was teaching there. And um, we really connected over a fascination with the sacred sites and would wander around the landscape Conjecturing about these sites and what they might have been used for, and so on. And the interesting thing for me was exploring the numinous properties of the two different fugus. So, Boli fugu is very different to Pendine vow, which is another fugu. Um And so, he was hypnotized in Pendine, and I was hypnotized in Boli. We'd already done these performance events. For example, Samhain at um, Cast, we'd already done that with some of the local neo pagans from Penzance. We had this mad experience on Chapel Street in Penzance. The Rafferty Dummets bands were practicing and they were coming up the road behind us, going into all the shops, and they were in their um, Samhain Allentide mode. So they were in this kind of really dark, eerie, creepy, sort of steampunk crow like outfits we're going to the vintage shop and these people come in after us and they were playing this incredibly haunting song and it was it was just repeated over and over again like it was a dirge and it was actually their Cornish Allentide song and it's incredibly haunting and powerful and it put me into a sort of trance yeah I was hypnotized by it basically and then I went home and I, I had these boots lying around the house and I thought the boots as ravens and I knew something terrible had happened. I hadn't checked my phone and then when I checked my phone, I just knew something awful had happened and my very close friend had died. So I kind of became really obsessed with the like the, the power of these local neo-pagans or the Cornish, the Penzance neo-pagans. So when Teresa Glado asked me to organize something at CAST, potentially for a seasonal changing event, I asked these people to come. I was basically put into a kind of trance for about a year after getting here. It was kind of like I felt like I was in this really specific space emotionally and, you know, it was palpable and I really wanted to just drag everybody into this space with me. So it was a bit like entering the Fugu.
3: Cornwall and Wales were Christianized, um, you know, in the Age of Saints, which, you know, the English called the Dark Ages. So Christianity actually was there in, you know, the, f- the fifth century, whereas the whole of England was pagan. I'm really interested in early Celtic Christianity because I think it's this really interesting bridge of spiritual revolution that has pulled in a lot of those Pagan beliefs right it's right at the heart of Christianity and I think that that has had such a huge influence really on the Celtic identity and Cornish language identity as well
2: I've just done some filming with my uncle actually for, for his new tv show and I'm not anxious about it particularly but I'm certainly aware of the fact that particularly in Newlyn, you know there's artists and fishermen coexisting but it's not there's always a friction and the friction is what makes it interesting it's not that we kind of understand each other but there is some kind of respect I think but you know the worst thing would be if these kind of communities were not active and you know did had no agency there was like fake versions of, of artists and fake versions of fishermen and then then what would it be I don't know I guess, you know, it's interesting to be in a place that feels slightly combustible and isn't gentrified And But also, you know, compared to other places I've lived, it's hard to kind of quantify how gentrification might happen down here.
0: Being a painter outside of London and knowing the kind of frustrations I was experiencing in one my in kind of connecting into London and what was happening there, but also thinking there were so many painters around me who were disparate and there were some who were achieving things at a higher profile than others. There are others just starting out, but there was no kind of way of people interconnecting. And I've seen a lot of graduates coming out and just kind of dissipating within the artist communities of the towns and cities and villages that we're part of in the Southwest. But they were kind of getting lost unless they could get up to London and get things happening there. And that there are a lot of painters here who have been going for a long time. Um, some have had, you know, lots of peoples with dips and highs within their career. And I wanted to find a way of just bringing people together so that we could. Find a way for painters to support each other. I think this also came out of being in Bristol, which historically is not really well. I mean, certainly in the last few years, is not painting is not figured as a presence. I mean, being at, having my studio at Spike Island, where if I'd say to anybody that I was there, they'd be really surprised. They say, "Well, there wasn't any painting at Spike." And I think, well, I know a lot of painters here, and I'm I'm meeting a lot of painters across the region. So, why don't we find a way to connect together? And kind of, if the institutions aren't taking any notice of us, it's also about, you know, well, you do something yourself. You don't wait for somebody to take notice of you. Interestingly, in this last year, though, there's suddenly been a kind of shift towards painting in the region as Mm the. Denzel Forester is about to open at Spike, isn't it? And then they have got Chantal Joff um, and Lucy Stein's got her show there in next year. And I think it was also, it was to counteract this St. Ives imbalance that the idea of painting in the Southwest was about St. Ives. And again, the kind of derivative school that comes with that.
2: So the show in Spike, it was postponed. Um, I think it's it's actually a good thing for me because it's given me more time because it was going to be a bit crazy because I had a baby at the beginning of March. And, yeah, it was going to be only six weeks after that, but I'd made all the work, so it was fine. But now I've got another year to make more work, and and the whole thing takes more shape. Plus, I've started this course in psychoanalysis with a view towards maybe doing, probably doing the training. So I really kind of feel like the idea of extrapolation is really current for me actually and also just to be able to go back into my own body of work and sort of like wrestle out the bits that actually mean something and and be quite confident about that I think we're all traumatized now and I think you know it doesn't have to be funny and it doesn't have to be light if I'm good at anything I think I'm quite good at making things quite kind of emotional
5: Beachcombing is a favorite activity of mine, and for me, the painter is a kind of beachcomber. I live in a country which has been changed by man over many centuries of civilization. It's impossible for me to make a painting which has no reference to the very powerful environment in which I live. I have to refer back continually to what is under my feet, to what is over my back, and to what I see in front of me. I am not interested in standing still in one position, and I would use anything, bicycles, cars, or aeroplanes, to explore my relationship to my environment. My concern is not to produce pure shape or color on a surface, but to charge and fill up every mark I make with information which comes directly from the world in which I live.
1: In August 1964, Peter was on a training course with the Devon and Somerset Gliding Club near Honiton. As he came into land, caught in a crosswind, the glider flipped and crashed. Four days later, at Taunton Hospital, he died. Peter's reputation and influence has been reappraised in recent years, from exhibitions such as Soaring Flight at the Courtauld Gallery in London, and the publication of the catalogue raisonné by Toby Treves comprehensive study of all-known works, to the BBC's 2010 documentary, The Art of Cornwall with James Fox, which although using a playful tone as we will now hear, introduced his work and approach to a wider public.
4: Lanyon decided there was only one way to make a proper landscape painting. It was simple, you had to get out of doors, let go of your inhibitions, and experience the countryside in every possible way. You'd have to get right to the edge of a cliff until you're sick with vertigo. You'd have to get as close to nature as possible. Sometimes you had to get wet. You'd have to go rock climbing. You'd have to run up a hill and catch the view by surprise. Now, this all might seem a bit childish, but it's central to Lanyon's artistic philosophy because Lanyon isn't trying to paint what Cornwall looks like. He's trying to paint what it feels like.
3: What interested me with Le again was, and it was the way that it was presented, I think, perhaps was more, there was a lot of information attached to it. As an artist, I feel lucky to have this language that I can explore that just, I love the sound of the words. They work so well. You can, you know, really experiment with them. You know, that's the use of it for me and emotion, exploring emotion that I haven't explored before through lyrics and sound and singing, but it's, it's, it's just music. And like, that's the most important thing. And I feel, I I love the challenge of making music in a language that, not a huge people understand I find the joy in that someone is understood without me having to explain by creating those challenges to an audience I think that that's where the magic happens like that's where the alchemy is, is in like how an audience is um, interpreting it and, and what it's about and I'd love to I would love to reach a purity and expression where you're not even gonna need to know but you'll know you know that would be the aim for me as a musician and a songwriter is that and i really i'm trying to explore that with the album is that can you can you know what how i feel what i'm the feeling i'm trying to get out here and i'm not going to explain need to explain to you the details like i think that's a really exciting thing to coexist
2: with dead in the past is extremely complex many of the kind of legends from here were revealed to me in in new light just through talking to people but also through reading the dark monarch or you know going to the st ives archive and i suppose there's a sort of gentrification that happens isn't there with institutionalization and it's quite easy to forget how complex and messy and sordid and difficult and overlapping you know sensual all of these people and their lives were you know it's not benign or benevolent and you know my own history with my grandfather and the effect that 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 kind of inherited trauma has on generations that didn't even meet that protagonist is still deeply affected perhaps in an epigenetic kind of way by what happens to them and and the effects it has on other family members and that you know that's interesting in many ways but it's interesting if you apply it to society of course and you know things that are being played out now relate to things that happened then maybe it's more interesting to, to visualize yourself as a sort of parasite being hosted by these by these people or you know or treat them as a kind of friendly ghost as in the more ironical way of dealing with it and then you know they get their own back on you eventually
1: (laughs) during my conversation with gueno i asked if there was anything she wanted to ask me my answer serves for me as the right way to conclude for now
3: so how much of an influence has your granddad has on you, if any?
1: I think the, the most important thing to do as an artist is to find your own voice. And one of the most important things in doing that is it's going to take time and it's not going to come easy. And there will be times where that voice comes through louder and more clearer and others not so and he is he's an excellent influence in terms of just sheer drive ambition and i find it a wonderful thing to have if i'm at a low point kind of creatively you know i can kind of turn to his writings perhaps or i can just look at some of the the work and it can almost be like a ghost on the shoulder you know in in a sense like go on don't worry you know <laughs>
3: Nice. so you really feel he's with you
1: so, sometimes yes and, and and he's like
3: come on Vo, you could do it yeah yeah come on i
1: mean that's actually an, inc- an incredibly personal thing to reveal but yeah sometimes there is that sense that like go on you know but and, and other times you just have to kind of completely ignore it because it could actually be an unhelpful infiltration uh so it's it's a it's a balancing act um but for the majority, it's just um, it's it's a gift. It's a treasure to have. You're always, in some way, walking on the bones of your ancestors, aren't you?
2: Thanks
1: to Martin Lanyon at the Lanyon Archive, Hannah Murgatroyd, Lucy Stein, Gweno, Rosa Tyhurst, and Carmen Julia at Spike Island, Heavenly Records, Downtown Music, and Fiona Glynn Jones.
5: This podcast was brought to you by Bricks. Bricks brings together the people of Bristol through collaborative art projects, public realm producing, community led co design and securing the spaces our communities need to thrive. On our site you will also find a blog post with links and images related to the subjects covered in this episode and profiles of all our artists and projects. So go check it out at bricksbristol.org. As a new independent charity, We rely on the support of people like you so that we can support our communities. If you can, please consider supporting our work through donating the price of a sandwich, buying a tote bag or purchasing an artwork from our online shop. Big thanks to Arts Council England and National Lottery players for funding this episode as part of the BRICS Artist Programme.